In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Back when I was a teenager and in a church youth group, a lot of us spent some time together. First, there was Sunday morning Sunday school, followed by the worship service. Then Sunday night involved youth choir that met at 5 in the evening. Then discipleship training around 6.15. Somewhere in there, there was some sort of dinner in between. And then at 7 in the evening, we had Sunday night church. And if that wasn't good enough, we all got together again on Wednesday night for more youth activities. So it would be nothing to have anywhere from seven to eight youths to maybe even 25 or 30 at any one time around the church. One of the things I recall was that every few months or so, certain topics would come around, would sort of peek their head above the surface of the water and go back into the depths of our discussions waiting for a few more months to pass. But let's say that a boyfriend and girlfriend broke up, or if someone felt that they had been wronged by someone else, or there was just some sort of strife in the group. This passage from Matthew 18 would come up, sometimes to even dominate the topic we were supposed to be studying. The youth group even had little phrases that meant that something was about to happen. I think Michael is going to go all Matthew 18 on Jim. Or, since so-and-so broke up, I bet they're going to go Matthew 18 on each other. It was almost as if these few verses of this gospel were as well known to us as John 3.16. And it was always unpleasant, awkward, and usually added more division to the group. Here's how the drama would typically play out. First, um, we'll just call them Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted have a disagreement or a fight about something. Bill tells Ted that he's offended, and Ted just shrugs it off. So Bill then goes around and calls Sam and Jim. The three of them go... Bill tells Ted what the problem is, and Ted is unrepentant. So now, Bill, Sam, and Jim approach the youth group and bring up allegations about something Ted did. And the church tells Ted to apologize. He doesn't. So the youth group effectively excommunicates him because he is obviously, one, in the wrong, and two, acting like a sinner. So, we don't need him in our group, and we don't need him corrupting our church. Now, we see this pattern all the time. There are civil court cases, there are conflict resolution experts, there are family meetings and team huddles, even text message threads involving a whole host of people who sometimes get all riled up. And being on the right side is always the goal. We don't take people to court so that we lose our case. We don't hire conflict negotiators to give in to the demands of others. We fight, and we try to prove that we are right. Now, this passage breaks down and is not really all that helpful 
if we consider it like we would the justice system or a system of retribution and punishment. There is always a winner and there is always a loser. And that is because this Matthew 18 code is written for a community and how they deal with sin within that community. And everyone in the community must agree on these rules, on the method of dealing with sin before it occurs. So let's take a little bit of an in-depth review of this code. First, if another member of the church sins against you, now, what are we talking about? We're talking about sin, willful sin. This isn't someone not saying hello in the grocery store. This is if a member of the church steals items from your shopping cart after you've already paid for them. It's someone charging you an unfair price because they think they can get more money out of you because you happen to go to church with them. It's about someone sinning against you. And then, it is also about you addressing that fault. Mary, I think you took my eggs when you were talking to me. Larry, I think you overcharged me on my vet bill. It's pointing out the sin and doing it in a private, intimate matter. Second, and this is where the danger begins to happen, we call for backup. Take one or two others with you. Jesus is quoting part of the Torah, the law, when he states this step. In the law, any time a judgment was to be made against someone else, at least two witnesses were needed. Here's one verse. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense that may have been committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That comes from Leviticus 19.15. Or, here's another one. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death but he shall not be executed on the testimony of a lone witness. Um, that's Leviticus 17.6. This taking witnesses is not quite what we think. This is really about finding people who were with you when whatever sinful event happened, or who were observers to the action. Witnesses add credibility to a case. They take on the role of the burden of proof. And in many cases, they are required by the fact that they were there. The excuse of not wanting to get involved doesn't fly because if sin or an injustice truly has occurred, then it is the responsibility of the witnesses to produce testimony to help to right whatever wrong occurred. Third, now, assuming that nothing has changed the mind of the sinner, the offender, then we bring it before the church, the fellowship of believers. Don't think of this step so much as a jury trial, but more like a council. 
The goal isn't to prove someone guilty or innocent, but to solve a situation, to come away from a problem with a viable solution for everyone. It's the church, the assembly of believers who discern and pray that something equitable will come forth. And what happens if that person is still unrepentant? According to Jesus, he is to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector, people despised by the Jewish establishment. Why? Well, obviously they are against the church. They're breaking the unity of the collective. They prefer to live like outsiders to the community by not keeping up with its code of conduct. Right? Right? So, if we are to follow the model of Jesus in all our decision-making and in all our relationships, and I want you to think back to uh, the bracelets from a few years ago, the WWJD logos. If we are to follow the model of Jesus, then we must ask, what would Jesus do? If that is our standard and our metric, then how many Gentiles did Jesus ever turn away? How many tax collectors did he refuse to associate with? How many sinners did Jesus tell they were unworthy to approach him? None. Jesus never turned anyone out. So why should we? Why should we? What are we being called to do? Rather than excommunicating members or, or turning them out or hoping that difficult people leave our fellowship, perhaps what we are really being called to do it's to let that one person be taught, perhaps even retaught, or be evangelized again and shown what living the Christian life is really all about. Remember last week and how we are called to take up our crosses? Perhaps this is a cross we are also called to bear, to help keep each other in check as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, all of us, but especially you because you live here, you see, you work, and you know the people who have fallen away and the ones that we need to call back here. And this is work for you to do, all of you. In areas that we are lacking, we'll need to strengthen. And in areas where we are excelling, we must continue the good work. But much of the work we have to do has to do with reconciling with those who have fallen away, regardless of why they left. My friends, we are in a time of national unrest and fear. With 
everything going on today, from a virus causing us to distance ourselves from each other, to riots in some major cities, and people fearing for their jobs, even though our unemployment rate seems to be slightly improving, coupled with a turbulent election season, and all the various worries we have that are unique to our own lives, then why not? Why not begin to implement an ethos of forgiveness and reconciliation? We all need it. We all require it. Many of us have much to be forgiven for. And in like manner, we have much forgiveness to hand out to everyone who has wronged us. The history of the church has been replete with factions dividing, denominations being formed, Christians literally burning other Christians at the stake. That's one of the reasons cited in much of the research about church growth is that Christians fight too much and people aren't interested in joining in. For the literal love of God and for the sake of his church, love one another. And if we happen to have disputes, which sometimes even the best of friends have, Always be willing to take that person back in, even if it is to teach them again what true discipleship looks like.